Hello, everyone. This is the Guidehouse Transportation Insights Podcast for February 9th, 2022. I'm Sam Abu-Al-Samad, a Principal Analyst with uh, Guidehouse Insights. And I'm joined today by my colleagues, Christian Albertson, Ryan Citron, and Joe Janetta. Uh, and uh, Ryan, or, uh, yeah, I'll start with you, Ryan, this week. Um, what's going on in, uh, in your sector of the transportation space? Yeah, thanks, Sam. Um, so today I'm going to talk about the EV Spot Network, which is the largest publicly owned EV initiative in the U.S. to date. Um, so this just came out a couple of days ago. Uh, the U.S. Twin Cities of St. Paul and Minneapolis are launching a network of 100% renewably powered on-street EV charging points. And those can be used to charge both private EVs as well as vehicles that are going to be used in the new publicly operated uh, community car share service, which is going to be called EV, E-V-I-E. Uh, the partnership, it's a public-private partnership, and it includes Excel Energy, uh, the car share fleet leased by the city of St. Paul, and EV car share, which is operated by a local nonprofit called Our Car. And by the time all 70 EV spot charging locations are installed and activated, it will increase the number of public charging ports in the Twin Cities by 50%. Uh, and this network should be fully operational by fall of 2022. They just opened up the first few charging points uh, last week. Um, the EV car share fleet will be 101 cars with plans for an eventual total fleet of 171 electric vehicles. Um, so yeah, I thought this was an interesting story, it really kind of shows the growing need for on-street public charging infrastructure. To support EV owners, um, you know, who can't charge at home, drivers need to charge during the workday and commuters and visitors from out of town. I think the on-street aspect of charging hasn't been talked about enough. Um, I don't think it's going to be feasible to just have charging stations at uh, where gas stations typically were and using that model based on how much longer vehicles take to refuel. You know, you could see huge congestion uh, of vehicles at, at gas stations. So having lots of, uh, you know, level two Chargers spread around cities, um, where the, such as where this program is doing, is really on the street where residents live, is something that I, I think makes sense to, to supplement the kind of public fast charging that we're seeing a, a big push on on the DC side. Uh, and I think it'll be really interesting uh, with the 7.5 billion uh, earmarked for EV charging funding from the federal infrastructure bill. You know how much will will go towards some more of these on street initiatives? Um, certainly. Uh, level two is, is quite a bit cheaper to install than uh, DC fast charging. So would expect um, hopefully some consideration for these kind of projects. I know that in London in the UK, um, there's some projects around EV charging on light poles and, and residents can request to have chargers put on streetlights uh, near where they live. I'm pretty sure in California, there are some um, efforts around smart street lighting to also add EV charging to those. So I think it's a really interesting uh, project. Again, the largest publicly owned uh, EV initiative in the U.S. to date. And uh, curious if anyone else has on the team has thoughts about these kind of on-street public charging initiatives and, and how, you know, what, what what piece of the picture on-street will play in the, in the total charging ecosystem. Yeah, I, I, I 
think that um, you know various types of on-street uh, charging are going to be an, accent, an essential part of this uh, as we move forward as we expand the mm-hmm. audience for EVs beyond the early adopters who have so far predominantly been people that that live somewhere where they have off-street parking access. They have a, a gar- private garage or you know, driveway where um, they can install their own charger and, and do overnight charging or they have access to workplace charging. Um, you know, once you get, uh, you know, a significant portion of the, the population, um, particularly more so in Europe, uh, but even here in, in North America, you know, lives in older neighborhoods where you don't have that off street parking. Uh, they do, they do have to park on the street. And so access to various types of charging infrastructure, like what you've described, as well as some mix of DC charging, uh, at places like grocery stores and, and other locations that they go to on a regular basis, uh, mm-hmm. I think is going to be crucial to really expanding the audience for the potential audience for EVs. Um, have they said, you know, where, what types of areas they're going to install these chargers in? Is it going to be, um, primarily in residential areas? And uh, presumably it's the chargers will be available to, uh, to everyone, not just those that are using these ride share or these car share vehicles, right? Yeah. So from some of the pictures, uh, the article looking, it looks very much on residential streets and you're right that it, um, it's it's you know partially being designed for the the car share service, but it also will be available to private EVs as well. Um, people can pay f- through a credit card or download the app. There's a particular app that they could use to pay as well. So it's it's for all of the above um, charging. And yeah, no, I just I agree totally with you, Sam. I think that uh, trying to replicate the gas model one for one is not going to work. And you could, you could imagine just huge backlogs of people trying to, to get into a gas station for charging. If let's say all the chargers were there. So it's so really spreading them out, having more just uh, trickle charging going on all over the place. Uh, it makes a lot of sense to me. So I assume uh, these are probably going to be uh, like, you know, standalone pedestal type chargers as opposed to, um, you know, the, the, uh, in the utility poles. Yeah, these are standalone, and it looks like each one has two uh, charging points on it, two connectors. Okay. Uh, as far as payments go, I mean, one of the other challenges that a lot of consumers have found with charging uh, is you know having to juggle. Uh, multiple different charging networks. You know, today you've got companies like ChargePoint and EVgo and Blink and Electrify America, and you've got to have accounts with each one of these uh, if yeah. you want to get the the best rates. Um, are is the the city planning to um, integrate? You know, with um, things like plug and charge um, or you know any any type of aggregation service that will enable users to have one account set up that gives them access across multiple different networks. Yeah, that's a great question and a great point. Uh, I haven't seen anything about that yet in, in articles I've read. I mean, basically, it's just saying uh, charging for personal vehicles can be activated by credit card or the ZephNet Charge app. Um, so yeah, I'm not seeing sort of integration discussions around kind of the big charging providers that, that we're used to speaking about. Um, it seems like more of a local uh, situation with, with Zeph Energy as a local company that won the, won the contract to supply and install the chargers. So unfortunately, it seems like it, it is a bit along the lines of the, the problematic rollout that you described with um, separate providers. 
I guess they're trying to, uh, since this will increase the, the number of chargers by 50%, all with this one provider, maybe they're hoping that, you know, such a large percentage will be on this network that uh, it won't be too problematic with all the different charging providers. But um, yeah, no, it'd be a good thing to investigate more if there are any thoughts from the city or, or plans to, to integrate with other network providers. Okay. Um, let's see, I guess uh, last thing is, uh, you know, who, who is actually going to, it sounds, I guess it sounds like Zeph Energy is actually going to, uh, own and operate these, uh, you know, the, under some sort mm-hmm. of contract or public-private partnership with the city yeah. of St. Paul. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And there was city, regional, state, and federal agencies apparently that contributed contributed to funding uh, the project. So it's kind of quite a few different organizations. And like I said at the beginning, Excel Energy uh, was one of the partners who's going to be doing the renewable electric infrastructure. And then, um, yeah, the city and the, and the local nonprofit and then the car share. So it's kind of a number of different uh, actors coming together along with several levels of public funding. So it took quite a collaborative effort to, to get this going. Uh, where, where does uh, Zeph currently operate? Uh, are they mainly in the upper Midwest region, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, as it looks like? Yeah, I would assume so. I mean, I, I don't, I haven't actually heard of Zeph Energy before this. So it just says they're a local, local company in the Twin City area that um, won the contract. I'd have to sort of check out where exactly they're. Yeah, they're currently looking deployed. Their, looking at their yeah. site, it looks like uh, they they stretch from North Dakota down through through Illinois across that that whole region there. So they're okay. you know they've they've got a, a looks like a pretty decent sized network growing now. So. Hopefully they'll have enough resources to to continue to support these for uh, for a while yet. Yeah, the the biggest worry is always having chargers just you know fall off the wayside if the company goes under and they're not being maintained and they're no longer functional and things like that. So yeah, that would be the worst right. case scenario. Hopefully that doesn't happen. All right, uh, Christian, you got any thoughts on this one? Uh, not really. I'm, I'm I, I think it's kind of interesting the Minneapolis St. Paul area. Starting that there, it's I mean, with the, the the cold weather and on the street charging to start with that that kind of is interesting to me on how they would, uh, uh, you know, with batteries not charging completely the same way and cold versus a warmer day, be an interest. It's interesting to me to see it start there rather than anywhere else. Yeah, well, you know, the batteries do, you know, they, they do charge slower when they're cold, but they will charge and you yeah. know, you'll get a you'll get a full charge out of them. And you know, for for these uh owners that are you know, if they can keep them plugged in overnight, then you know, that's an advantage because then they can take advantage they can utilize the the preconditioning systems for the climate control. Um and when they get out in the morning to go to work or to school or wherever uh, they can have their car already pre-warmed up while it was plugged in. And then uh, that will take less energy. So it's going to consume less from their range that way. So it'll, I think, especially, you know, winters in Minnesota, having, having spent some winters in Minnesota in the past, uh, I know that uh, you you definitely don't want to get into a cold car, uh, you know, in the middle of January or February. Uh, so I think people will actually appreciate that capability of these car, of these vehicles. Okay. Yeah. Like, like I said, I'm not the expert on those. So I just yeah. I find it interesting. That's where they charge or where they're starting this program. 
All right. Okay, Christian, let's move on to you. What uh, what's going on in the air this week? Well, this this is a really fun one and a kind of uh, interesting one at the same time. So, one of my uh, uh, my last report was on uh, cargo drones that we looked at, unmanned cargo aircraft and everything. So, there's a little company in Switzerland called Destinus, and uh, they just went through and raised twenty nine million dollars to pursue their what they call hyperplane for cargo delivery. So the company's been around for a while. Last year, they actually flew this little uh, little aircraft, a um, little prototype of it. And it's about the size of your car. Um, the $29 million is going to help build the next version of this vehicle, which is going to be about the size of a bus. It is a rocket plane. It will take off like a regular airplane using rockets to get it to the air. It will fly up out of the atmosphere, break approximately Mach 15, and be able to deliver cargo anywhere in the world within two hours. So it's a very interesting concept. Uh, the company's, like I said, it's a, you know, they've been around for a while. Um, but, the, the the aircraft takes off like I said this is this is a rarity to have it take off like an airplane, um, and then go up uh, out of the, out of the atmosphere hit that Mach fifteen. It's got they've got to deal with the cooling as it comes back through the atmosphere. They've got to deal with everything. And what's funny is the way they describe the amount of, of cargo they're going to hold. It, they're going to hold dozens of uh, let's see what was <laughs> uh, dozens, dozens of, of packages. Tons. Dozens, dozens of tons of payload. Is that 12 ton, 24 ton? How many dozens are we talking? They don't say. But the, the main reason for this is they're looking at, okay, if, if we need to get medical supplies to somewhere quickly, we can load it on this aircraft and have it there in two hours. That's a great concept. But one of the things they also put in there is, is well, if you have some documents that need to be sent, you can put it on this and have the documents sent to somewhere in, in two hours or less. Well, in today's or you could use DocuSign. Age, yeah, today's <laughs> modern day and age. Or email. I'm in the process of buying a house. We just bought a house over the internet. You know, everything, everything was signed on DocuSign over or on the internet. So I don't see the, the need for documents to be sent anywhere in the world in two hours. Medical supplies, yes. I can see things. Yeah, I was going to ask, yeah. for, like, you know, what are they looking to ship here? Because this must be very important. <laughs> Quick turnaround stuff to be basically sending it into space. Uh, yeah, yeah. Rocket yeah I mean, for, for, that, for that sort of emergency deployment uh, type of thing, it, that would make sense. You know, I mean, yes. not as a general purpose delivery option, <laughs> but... It's like because emergency I, I think, food to an area that's had a natural disaster or something exactly. like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but at the same time, though, you have to look at um, – you have to have a landing facility for this as well. You have to have an airport it can land at. So if you have hmm. one of these disasters that – you know, like a major earthquake that destroys the airport or even puts a crack in the runway, the vehicle will not be able to land there. So it, it, does, it won't do you any good. Okay. Uh, so there's certain things it'll be great for, but certain things not so much. Um, if you need to get medical supplies to, you know, like an, a place where there's an outbreak or something like that, yeah, this will work perfect. You can get it there 
hour and a half, two hours, you're great. Um, if you want to get a pizza from New York sent to Shanghai, yeah, you're going to pay a lot for it, but it's is it worth yeah, it? Pricey pizza. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a $80,000 pizza. Um, <laughs> so it's really interesting. This is another one I want to keep my eye on. Um, I'd heard of this company before and saw what they were doing, but this is the first time they've they've gone through a uh, uh, money raising system. Or, you know, gone through the the, the funding, but they raised twenty nine million dollars to help build this big one. So, it's and it good. looks like they're um, using hydrogen. Christian, is that right? I just did a Google on the yeah story. Yeah, they're going to be using a, a hydrogen base, but it's also going to be a rocket base to. Um, to altitude hydrogen to get it further up. And then when it gets into, uh, goes in the atmosphere, it's basically going to glide. And because as soon as you get it up to up into the lower earth orbit, you don't have the friction, you can glide for a while. And then it's going to maintain a lot of that energy as it comes through, because it's going to be, um, uh, cooled or not cooled really, but the heat transfer basically just like the space shuttle was. So it's going to have your type, your heat tiles and everything on it. So it'll come through the atmosphere without burning up, but you know, anywhere you want two two hours or less, you can have your pizza. So is this going to be a, is this intended to be a piloted vehicle or a remotely piloted or autonomous? Uh, it's autonomous vehicle. It's an unmanned aerial vehicle that's going to be used for cargo. Hmm. Interesting. So, and it looks like they are, uh, focused on Europe, it looks like airports in France, Portugal, and Spain are, are the are the base for their testing. Do you have any sense as, as why they, they chose to focus on Europe versus any other region? Or? That's where they're based. Those, those are their four okay. headquarters: are, are Spain, France, Switzerland, and Germany. Are there are where their four offices are um, so for their company in that area? Yeah, yeah. So they're going to do that. But they, if you look at their um, all of their examples, they have one that goes from Miami to Seoul. South Korea, uh, things like that. So, so they're they're this, this is just where they're starting. So they're going to um, start flying out of Switzerland, or that's where they're flying now is out of Switzerland. Um, expand past that as they as they grow. But uh, yeah, in the past, Elon Musk has pitched the idea of using his upcoming Starship uh, craft for point to point travel on mm-hmm. earth, you know, get anywhere on the planet in an hour or something like that. Do you, you know, and, and of course that's a, that's a vehicle that lands, takes off and lands vertically as opposed to with a runway. So theoretically, at least, you know, you, you might, you'd have better options as to where, you know, more options as to where you could land that presumably anywhere you had a large enough pad of, of concrete, you could launch or, or, you know, uh, land that thing. Do you see this as more or less viable than what SpaceX has pitched? Um, the thing about it is, is there's multiple companies that are chasing this right now. And multiple companies that are, are having aircraft take off as an airplane would down a runway, uh, fly hypersonic into space and then land as an aircraft. That is is one of the things that is considered a holy grail in the aviation industry because the SpaceX type where you take off vertically and fly up and go through your go through space and come back and land vertically is a much it, it, 
it's harder to land vertically than it is to land like an airplane, you know, because you've got extra stuff in there. The hardest part about it is, okay, once you land vertically, how do you get those people out of the, the aircraft safely? Mm-hmm. Type of thing. There's a lot of safety issues there as well. If you have it take off as an airplane and land as an airplane, you can use an airport. You know, that's, that's the thing that gets me is, is why would you want to land vertically when you can land like an airplane? And especially with, with the, the uh, SpaceX planes having, or aircraft having problems of, of exploding when they're, <laughs> when they're coming down, <laughs> that's one thing you kind of want to avoid because it does take a lot of fuel on board to do that. Mm-hmm. So, yes, they're both viable. I see um, the air, airplane type hypersonics being more accepted and more usable than, than, than the SpaceX type. Okay. Interesting. Well, I mean, there's certainly no, no shortage of interesting ideas for how to move goods around the planet. Um, and, you know, when, in an era when, you know, supply chain disruptions are uh, more and more of a problem, you know, maybe having at least having some options might not be a bad thing. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to go back to the, uh, the EV area for uh, for my story this week um and it, it has to do with uh particularly with general motors but also we've also got some news uh from volvo uh, as well you know and it wasn't so long ago that you know a lot of people were thinking that the legacy automakers were basically doomed uh when it came to uh, try, uh, you know, trying to make the transition to electrification, that they were going to get swamped uh, by uh, startups uh, like Tesla and Lucid and Rivian and uh, and a lot of uh, new Chinese OEMs. But uh, it seems seems like the the legacy uh, automakers are making this transition much more quickly than than a lot of people anticipated. Um, and among those is General Motors. Uh, who during their uh, their earnings call uh, recently, their most recent earnings call for uh, Q4 of 2021, uh, their CEO Mary Barra talked about the uh, the the number of EVs that the company plans to build, uh, and is now projecting that by the end of 2023, uh, they will they're they're aiming to deliver 400,000 of their new EVs, um, which is significantly more than what was planned uh, a year or two ago. Uh, they are really accelerating their production plans. Uh, a- according to, uh, to Barra, they had the original plan was only to build about 7,000 of the new uh, Cadillac Lyric and GMC Hummers uh, by the end of 2022. They've now increased that volume uh, for this year to about 46,000. And by the end of next year, to take that up by an, almost an order of magnitude to 400,000, because uh, next year in 2023, they'll also be launching the electric version of the Chevy Silverado and GMC Sierra. Uh, and, um, you know, adding to that, the, the Hummer, which, you know, the Hummer, you know, I think everybody acknowledges is going to be more of a niche product for GM. It's never going to have the kind of volumes that the Silverado does because of the type of vehicle it is and how much it costs. But, uh, uh, you know, GM has already got 
two assembly plants uh, that are being converted over for production of the uh, the electric trucks. Uh, their Detroit Hamtramck assembly plant, uh, and they're also going to be converting their Orion, Michigan plant, where they build currently build the Chevy Bolt. Um, and by 2025, they want to be building a million EVs a year uh, in North America. Um, similarly, you know, Ford. Uh, is targeting uh, expanding its production capacity for EVs to 600,000 vehicles a year by the end of next year. Uh, they they had previously announced plans to ramp up production of the uh, the Mustang Mach E from 50,000 to 200,000 by the middle of next year, uh, and also to increase production of the uh, the new. Um, F-150 Lightning, which is going to be going into production in a, the next month or two uh, in Dearborn from the originally planned 20,000 units up to 150,000 unit run rate by the middle of 2023. Uh, and then uh, th- just this week, uh, they started shipping the uh, e-transit, their electric cargo vans to uh, customers as well. So in, within the next uh, couple of months, they'll have three EVs that they're shipping um, in, in significant volumes. Um, and then uh, in, in Europe, we're also seeing moves from Volvo, which has previously announced, and this is Volvo cars that we're talking about, not Volvo truck. Uh, they previously announced their intention to uh, transition to being an all-electric brand by the end of this decade. Uh, and you know they've already got a couple of uh, electric models on the road today with the XC40 and the C40, uh, and they're launching a replacement for the XC90 uh, larger SUV later this year, uh, which is going to be all electric. And um, they announced last week plans uh, a partnership with Northvolt, uh, a Swedish battery company, to build a 50 gigawatt hour. Uh, cell factory near Gothenburg, uh, where Volvo does most of its production. Uh, that'll be enough uh, capacity to uh, accommodate about 500,000 EVs a year. Uh, and then they're also Volvo is also investing about 1.1 billion in its uh, assembly plant near Gothenburg uh, to transition to electric vehicle assembly and also add battery pack assembly, uh, large aluminum castings, and, and support the, the the production of those EVs, starting with the uh, the XC90 replacement. So we're seeing a, a real acceleration of this transition. And what's going to be fascinating to see is if the, uh, particularly here in North America, if the consumers actually come along for the ride with these automakers. You know, GM, I think by the end of 2024, GM wants to have production capacity for 600,000, just, just for full-size pickup trucks, 600,000 a year. Um, out of uh, three plants and um, or out of two plants, I should say, out of Detroit and Orion. Uh, and they currently sell about uh, uh, about uh, nine, about 900,000 um, gas pickup trucks a year. And clearly, you know, they're not going to get an additional 600,000 units of incremental sales volume with the transition to electric. So, you know, that's going, you know, a lot of that's going to take away from the gas trucks and, you know, it, whether they can, you know, convert two thirds of their truck buyers to electric in the next three years is, is going to be a very interesting challenge. Absolutely. And I think um, something along the lines to what you're saying, Sam, is that's going to be really interesting is, you know, we see all these startups coming along where there's Tesla, Lucid or Rivian, 
you know, the, the total market for vehicle purchasing, as I understand, is not growing that massively. So you have all these new players coming in offering EVs. Now you have the legacy uh, automakers transitioning to EVs. There, there can't really be enough space for probably all of them to succeed. Like somebody's going to have to lose out a bit if you have all these new players bringing new vehicles and, you know, these legacy players also trying to do it. The market isn't necessarily growing gigantically of new vehicle purchase, especially not in North America. So how do you see that kind of shaking out, you know, on, on the, the winners and losers side? Clearly, some legacy players are going to struggle with, with this transition and lose significant amounts of business. Um, I guess my, my take initially is, to me, it seems like Ford is kind of leading the pack on, on the legacy side. And I think that having compelling vehicles is really the key here, you know, as you mentioned with GM, um, the Silverado and Sierra, I think will be good, good moves for them uh, to electrify. But but currently with the Hummer and the Bolt, you know, I, I don't see those as very competitive vehicles that have been super successful. Whereas Ford, you know, the Mach-E, the F-150 Lightning, as you mentioned, has had a really strong consumer demand. So curious your thoughts on just, you know, is there enough space for all these startups, all the traditional makers to actually sell you know, increasing volumes of vehicles or is inevitably a bunch of them are going to get left out and sort of how, how do you see that that race shaping up in terms of who's who's leading and where it's going? Yeah, there's there's definitely not enough space for everybody um, yeah. Or, yeah. or not, you know, not at the kind of volumes that they're talking about. Uh, you know, somebody, you know, some of these products are going to lose out uh, and some of these brands are going to lose out. I think, you know, a big question is going to be, you know, are we actually going to see the pace of EV adoption that is going to be necessary to support all of this production capacity uh, in the near term, at least, uh, you know, I think in, in our most recent uh, EV forecast, you know, we projected a, about 30% global market share or slightly less than 30% global market share for EVs in 2030. Uh, and as you said, you know, the, the overall vehicle market is not growing that rapidly. You know, I think the, our, Kager projected Kager through 2030 is uh, about 3%. Uh, so, you know, it's a relatively slow growth in, especially mm-hmm. in the uh, established markets. And, you know, the reality is, I, I don't think we, kind of, I don't think we really want to grow the volume of vehicles significantly more than that, you know, because yeah. a, a big part of the problem we have with energy use and, uh, and congestion on the roads, you know, is too many vehicles. You know, what we actually need is to get fewer people using individual vehicles, moving into shared modes of transportation, you know, in order to address some of the societal problems that we have. So if you're not going to grow the overall market, you know, the pie, if you've got a, a relatively fixed size pie and more, more people wanting a piece of it, there's going to be smaller slices for everybody. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that was one of the, the criticisms of a lot of these EV company stocks going crazy. And then, you know, Ford and GM stocks going crazy. Well, it's like, they're not all going to, they can't all just be so successful selling EVs, right? Somebody's going to have to lose out because the pie is only so big and it's not growing very much uh, each year, especially not in North America or, or Europe. Yeah, a, a lot of the newcomers, you know, like Lucid, Rivian, um, Faraday, if they ever manage to get to production, uh, you know, are at least initially targeting the high end of the market, which, you know, has has done well, but it's still, you know, it's a comparatively smaller portion of the overall market. Uh, and, you know, 
by the time that they start to move down market into more mainstream segments, the established players, the legacy players will already be well established with EVs in those markets. You know, among the products that GM has said that they're going to introduce next year uh, is a $30,000 uh, Equinox EV. You know, the Equinox is Chevrolet after the Silverado is Chevrolet's best-selling vehicle, uh, selling over 300,000 units a year, a compact crossover. And that, that compact crossover segment is, you know, is, has become the new volume mainstream segment in the U S uh, you know, along with vehicles like the Toyota RAV4 and Nissan Rogue Equinox, Honda CRV, and for GM to offer, you know, a, a product in that segment that starts at $30,000, you know, by the time these other players get into those mainstream products, they'll already be there well-established. I think it's going to be very difficult for them to, uh, to make inroads uh, into those market segments. Yeah, you know, that's a really good point. It's, it's hard to see Rivian being able to compete with GM at the $30,000, $40,000 level vehicle for sure. Yeah. Well, for, for me, that brings up a couple of questions. You know, the more of these they make, the lower the price theoretically should, should be. Um, wh- where do we get to a point where, okay, so you said Volvo is going to be a completely electric car company by the end of the decade. Where do we see, or do you see one of the big three doing that Ford coming out and saying, okay, we're not going to make anything but electric vehicle by a certain date. Um, if, because if, if I find it hard to believe that three quarters of the truck buyers would want to buy an electric truck right now. It, it it does seem it does seem implausible, but on the other hand, uh, you know, Ford, uh, you know, before they shut off reservations for the F one fifty Lightning, they had two hundred thousand reservations for it from consumers, in addition to a significant number of reservations they had from their commercial customers, their commercial fleet customers. Um, Mary Barra said that they had over one hundred and ten thousand pre orders in the first three weeks for the Silverado EV. Uh, you know. I, I have, I, it seems like, and I think, you know, we'll have a much better idea, you know, maybe this time next year after the um, lightning has been on the road for a while, um, you know, how, you know, what the real acceptance rate for these electric pickups, pickups is going to be. But right now it seems like a lot of pickup buyers really are seriously interested in, in going down this electric path, uh, you know, to your question of, you know, when, you know, when will some of these companies be all electric? I mean, GM has publicly stated, you know, their their target, you know, they would like to be all electric by 2035. Um, you know, they're, they may not make it by that point. I, 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 they probably won't make it, you know, to 100% electric by that time frame. Um, but I think a, a substantial majority of their vehicles, of their sales, will be electric in that time frame. Uh, Ford, you know, has said probably in the 2035 to 2040 time frame. Uh, a lot of the smaller brands like Volvo, uh, Jaguar, Land Rover, you know, especially a lot of the, the premium brands are targeting that even 2030 uh, as the the time frame for making a full transition, uh, not not every brand, you know, some some do intend to keep uh, at least some form of internal combustion around. Beyond that, uh, like Porsche has said, you know, they want to keep internal combustion engines around. Uh, Ferrari, Lamborghini probably will, but most likely, you know, as part of a hybrid 
powertrain. So, but they're, you know, even, you know, those brands are going to offer all electric, you know, or in some cases like Porsche already offer all electric models that are selling extremely well. You know, the, the Porsche Taycan outsold the 911 last year, uh, which, you know, is, you know, only slightly surprising, um, you know, but uh, that, you know, that is, and it's the, the Taycan is the second or third best selling EV in Norway now, you know, which is the strongest EV market in the world in terms of market share. Um, so, you know, it's, I think, you know, perhaps we, we might've um, underestimated the appetite from consumers for EVs as you start to get more, more variety, more, uh, more different uh, models, different configurations of EVs. Uh, and, you know, with longer ranges, uh, I think, we're, it's going to be very interesting to watch another another company you know another one of these newer brands that I didn't mention that is going to be very interesting to watch is Fisker uh, you know Fisker is launching their first you know the ocean their first their SUV uh, late this year and it's going to have a starting price of thirty seven thousand dollars so unlike most of the other uh, startups that you know, are going at the high end of the market. Um, Fisker is going very much for the mainstream. You know, the price range, you know, for all the different configurations goes from that baseline $37,000 model to about $60,000. And that's really, you know, that that's pretty close to the, the heart of the market, especially when you take off the, the federal tax credits, you know, the various tax incentives, you know, you, you're, you could potentially get a Fisker Ocean starting at about $30,000. Um, or less, uh, depending on where you live. So, it, we're it's going to be a very interesting time to to watch this. Yeah. yeah, and I think just to to add on to that. So, so one, as Sam said, the consumer demand I think is showing to be stronger than than most people thought. And then also, if you think about if you're looking at 2030, you know, the electric truck, pickup truck, SUV, car, whatever of 2030 is going to be a lot different than the ones we're seeing right now in 2022 so they're they're going to be a lot more compelling even then than for a lot more than they are now so it's also trying to you know create in your head an idea you know based on what battery technology breakthroughs we could see with solid state or or others it's gonna be a a markedly different vehicle that, that people are considering buying in 2030 and it's it's possible to me that the tech could improve so much that it would be pretty unreasonable for someone to want to buy a gas vehicle in 2030 over an electric uh, if it improves, you know, some substantial degree. Yeah. You know, I've told you guys before, I had originally reserved one of the electric Fords, the the lightnings and decided against it when, you know, you look at their range was so low and everything that they were talking about. And I think I think you're right, though, Ryan. As soon as we, uh, we get a few more years down the road and things are perfected a little bit, you know, we'll, we'll, it'll be a completely different world when it comes to electric yeah. vehicles. If it had a 700 mile range, how would you feel about it? Oh, I'd do it in a heartbeat. Yeah, there you go. I mean, so that's one of the things we do. Is is me and my family? We like to do road trips, where it's you know, right now the way my truck is, I've got a 700 mile range in my truck with a V8. You know, you know, I, I can fill up with gas and, you know, three to four tanks of gas be on the other side of the country. You know, if I've got a 300 mile range in a pickup truck, how many days is it going to take me to get across country when you have to stop and recharge every, you know, 300 miles? 
So, so that really d- did affect my, my purchase right there. Now I can see it for in town. If all you're doing is, is, you know, a construction job or, or you, you never travel with the vehicle. I can see it. That's not a problem. Um, but it didn't make sense to me because that's not the way we use the vehicles. And, and that's, you know, that's very legitimate. You know, I mean, you, you have a, a particular use case that at least at this point in time, uh, does not make it a, a sensible choice for you. And, and, you know, th- that's going to be the case for a lot of people. Um, I think, you know, what's going to be interesting to see over the coming two years is what, what portion of the audience for pickup trucks fit, you know, within what's going to be offered, uh, versus, you know, what, what you, uh, you know, what, what you need, uh, in your use case. Um, certainly I think pickup trucks, I think are, are an interesting case in particular, more so than, uh, some of, you know, some of the, you know, SUVs crossovers and cars, because so many of those, you know, probably roughly about half of full-size pickup truck sales go to commercial customers, you know, mm-hmm. or people, people who are using them for work uh, as opposed to uh, using them as a daily driver. I mean, certainly a lot of Americans do use them as, as a daily driver, you know, as a commuter vehicle. Um, but, you know, a, a large proportion of the, the market for that are those customers that use that, you know, within a, a limited geographic range and, you know, 250 to 300 miles of range is going to be sufficient for what they need, you know, and still allow them to utilize features like uh, the the power takeoff capability that you have, that the F-150 and the Silverado are going to have, you know, to power their tools, things like that. Um, so I think, I think that's where we're going to see a lot of the, the customers for those. And the, the, the retail market's going to be fascinating to watch uh, how that develops. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see. Yeah. All right. Well, unfortunately, uh, Joe had to drop off due to technical issues, so he he won't be able to share anything with us this week. Uh, but I want to thank everybody for listening and uh, uh, stay subscribed. And uh, if you have any feedback, uh, feel free to reach out through uh, guidehouseinsights.com. Uh, thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye.